Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pactum. I'm Pat Abendroth. This is episode 34, and today we're going to be talking about a book that John Murray, the theologian, said is the most important book on sanctification ever written. And that means we are going to be talking about the gospel mystery of sanctification by Walter Marshall. But before we go any further, let me acknowledge that my co-host, Mike Grimes, is not with me. He is absent, and therefore this will be another Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. Let's begin by posing the question, why discuss sanctification anyway? Well, we should discuss it because it's something that is crucial. It might be one of, if not the most crucial thing in the Christian life, and that is the matter of sanctification, growing in godliness. It's important. It always has been important. It always will be important. And it's always been controversial. There have been different approaches. There have been different theologians that have told us this is how one becomes sanctified, and it's created no small amount of conflict at times. And we can either say, oh, we're put off by the conflict, or we can say, let's gain from the conflict and learn some things so that we might try to figure out what is most biblical, what is most effective, and what is most honoring to Christ. I should also be honest and say another reason we're talking about this is because it's fresh in my mind. Because today, Theology for Breakfast started, something we've been doing here at the church where I pastor for, oh, a number of years, since 2006. And we began talking today about sanctification, and we began talking today about this very book that we're talking about, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And so with that in mind, let's consider Marshall, who back in the 1600s as a pastor had theologically grown up under the influence and the theological instruction and influence regarding sanctification and other things uh, under a man named Richard Baxter. So he grew up, he cut his teeth, so to speak, under the influence of Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter lived between 1615 and 1691. Our author, Walter Marshall, 1628 and 1680. So to keep things in mind, he, without going after Baxter by name, really is taking aim at Baxter because... Marshall was despairing for so much of his life and and not at peace and not having joy, even as a Christian who professed faith in Christ. And so Baxter really is not the sole cause, but a major cause for all of his, his spiritual angst and crisis and despair. Now, who was Richard Baxter? Well, a, a very prolific author, writer uh, in the 1600s. Uh, he was someone who served in Cromwell's army as a chaplain. So Oliver Cromwell, New Model Army, think 1599 to 1658, Oliver Cromwell. And for a short time, he served in uh, the military as a chaplain. And Baxter formed his theology during that time, in particular, his theology of justification. And he was very put off by observing the soldiers because the soldiers, so many of them were ungodly. They were all supposed to be Christians because, you know, back then we're all so supposed to be Christians and they were ungodly. And it caused Baxter to formulate his theology in light of their ungodliness 
And usually it's a bad idea to build your theology based upon experience, uh, and usually is an understatement, but that's the very thing that he did, according to one author, and I think he was right in doing so. So Baxter sees antinomianism as a big problem, anti-law. We're just going to do whatever we want to do, and we're not going to follow any kinds of laws from God. And so Baxter was against antinomianism, but we're going to say and see, and we're going to see that Walter Marshall... uh, saw that Baxter over pendulum swung uh, and went the other direction and became a neonomian. And we're going to have new laws that God never intended for us. And then maybe we can be sanctified or in Baxter's case, maybe we can even be justified, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we're looking at this from a historical vantage point. And we may say, well, why is it important? This is the 21st century. We're not talking about 1600s. We don't wear the kind of hats that they wore. Uh, we don't look like they looked. We're living in very different times. But it's important because sanctification still is important. It's always been important. It always will be important. And so that's why it's an important discussion now because sanctification is still important now. And also Richard Baxter is still important now because so many people promote Richard Baxter and seem to have a man crush on Richard Baxter and promote his same uh, means of sanctification. And unfortunately, we're not looking to learn from what it did to the likes of Walter Marshall and looking to Walter Marshall and his more biblical, robust, significant, thoughtful, mature, Protestant means for sanctification, which ultimately would find itself in union with Christ. Well, speaking of Richard Baxter and his popularity, all one needs to do is do some Google searches, and you will find rather quickly that people seem to love Richard Baxter even today, people who are part of Big Eva, people who are supposedly reformed in their theology, people who we look up to, who put on big conferences, and who seem to have everyone's trust. Uh, I won't name names here, but according to one reformed slash evangelical seminary blog, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor. Really? Or how about from another resource? This person said, the most heavenly minded man who ever lived other than Jesus and the disciples or biblical characters. He says, may have been Richard Baxter. He was a remarkable Puritan pastor and writer, someone else, a big conference promoter. Here's a man who exemplified the closest, closest example of apostolic Christianity. Or another resource from Big Eva, Baxter's biblical insights are as relevant in the 21st century church as they were in the 17th. Indeed, the Reformed pastor remains a must-read for church elders after 360 years. And we could go on and on with the accolades of Richard Baxter. The problem is there's something hugely wrong with Richard Baxter and hugely wrong, therefore, with his view of sanctification and his views of justification. In fact, that's really where things go wrong right away. We're supposed to be enamored by him. We're supposed to trust him because our trusted leaders promote him so many times, not all of them, but many of them. Uh, whereas the likes of John Owen, Uh, would say, we should know better. John Owen was a contemporary, and John Owen spent no small amount of his writing ministry 
showing that Richard Baxter was no friend of the gospel because he did not affirm the Protestant doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of the finished work of Christ alone. In fact, his views of justification were very much Roman Catholic-ish, to put it uh, simply. So Baxter denied the imputed obedience of Christ as the ground of justification. See the Pactum episode 23 and 24 for the doctrine of the act of obedience of Christ. So Baxter rejects rejects that doctrine. Uh, Baxter thinks that uh, that Christ's righteousness caused a change in the demands of the law. So God, through Christ, uh, meets the obligation, not of the law, but to lower the law so it's more achievable so that we can obey it. And if we obey it well enough, we could finally be justified one day. He thinks that somehow faith includes works. Baxter also believed in a final justification by works. If it's sounding bad so far, it is. I hope I'm getting through to you. He was no friend of the gospel. He's no friend of justification. And our author, Marshall, would say, therefore, he's no friend of biblical sanctification. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Here's a very telling quotation from Richard Baxter. Faith, repentance, love, thankfulness, sincere obedience— together with final perseverance, do make up the condition of our final absolution in judgment and our eternal glorification. If that sounds a lot like something other than justification sola fide, uh, it's because it is. It's because it absolutely is. So his views are essentially, his justification views are essentially Roman Catholic. And I think this should be enough to get... um, the powers that be and the movers and the shakers and the influencers and the conference promoters uh, to say, hold on, why in the world are we promoting Baxter so much, Baxterianism, as I would want to call it, when he was no friend of the gospel articulated in Galatians? Well, I think that's where we need to be. If you would like some resources, and we'll put this in the show notes, but one really helpful resource uh, is by Michael Brown. Uh, we know Michael Brown because of the book Sacred Bond. He and Zach Keel authored that book. Same Michael Brown. Uh, he wrote a very helpful article called Not by Faith Alone, the Neonomianism, the New Lawism of Richard Baxter. And again, you can find it in the show notes, and it's rather telling. So if Baxter is problematic and really is no friend of justification from a Protestant perspective, as John Owen would, would want us to know, if that's the case, why? Why does Big Eva, Big Evangelicalism, uh, promote him? And I think the answer to that is they promote him because of ignorance. We don't all know everything. And so uh, because he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, and it's cool. If you're reformed, it's good to be reformed and to promote reformed books. uh, And you might not know. I mean, who has time to read the works of John Owen? Uh, who has time to, to, to know all of these things? So I think some of it's out of ignorance, and I'm not saying ignorance in a name-calling sort of sense. I'm ignorant of certain things. Uh, so I think some people promote Baxter because they just don't know. But in addition, I also think people promote Baxter, because I've been researching this lately, and I have in the past, people promote Baxter anyway, regardless of his unorthodox justification views. They promote him because they say, well, but he's good in sanctification. He's good when it comes to sanctification, and he's good when it comes to pastoral ministry as it would relate to sanctification. And in response to that, I would like to say, 
tell that to Walter Marshall. Walter Marshall had spiritual apoplexy and frustration and anything but joy. And I would suggest anything that but good spiritual, healthy, maturing growth under the influence of the likes of Richard Baxter. So how can he be wrong about justification? And he's good on sanctification, especially when his view of sanctification, get this, Pactum verse listeners, especially when his view, his very Romish view of justification really comes about as a result of some sort of quote unquote sanctification. Uh, Because if somehow you have to do all of these things and be more and more holy, and then eventually God will justify you, that is a bad, unbiblical, ungodly, demonic view of sanctification. And then it fits into pastoral ministry because so much of his pastoral ministry emphasis was to try to get people to behave by doing certain spiritual disciplines. Uh, And you've got to be in their home and you've got to be watching them and you've got to have them under your thumb. Well, that all makes sense, especially if their final justification depends upon you and it depends upon their works. And so I think we really need to give pushback and say, let's hold on a second and let's think twice before we promote an ungodly view of justification and sanctification and pastoral ministry. So I think, and I think Walter Marshall would say, amen and amen. You're listening to The Pactum, and we are talking about sanctification. We're talking about growth in godliness, and we're talking about it in particular through the lens of a historic controversy between Richard Baxter and Walter Marshall, but we're looking to learn from them so that we might learn for ourselves uh, why it is we would want to pursue biblical sanctification and not some other sort of means. And Marshall's big thing is sanctification is tied to union with Christ. So think Romans chapter six, we've been united to Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And there are, yes, ethical implications uh, from that, because now we live as new creatures in Christ because we've been raised with him. It does come back to Christ. It's not divorced from Christ. It's actually in union with Christ that this is a reality. Marshall found himself refreshed. He found joy. He found satisfaction from a vantage point of safety in Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you find yourself then growing out of gratitude, obeying God's law, yes, but out of gratitude, not for fear of perhaps not earning final justification by your works or by your merits, which was a Baxterian sort of thing. And many people even today are oppressed and have anything but joy because they've been taught a sort of kind of Baxterian sanctification that 
we should say, doesn't sanctify, and it only leads to despair. Sure, it's a great way for pastors to control you if they're ungodly pastors, and our Pactumverse pastors are not ungodly, so we're thankful that you're listening. And I should say, if you're listening as a Pactumverse listening pastor, and in the past you've promoted Richard Baxter, it's okay. Um, I once upon a time thought the Reformed Pastor was a good book. I was told to read it in seminary. It was promoted... uh, significantly. And it's okay to say, you know what, that was wrong. Now that I know what I know, I'm not going to promote that anymore. And I'm going to maybe get into Walter Marshall and find out a more biblical means to sanctification because, hey, let's face it. We all want Christians to behave like Christians. I want to behave like a Christian. I want people I pastor to behave like Christians. I want Pactum verse listeners to behave like Christians and honor Christ. But how are we going to do that through some unbiblical control? contrived anti-Protestant methodology that actually doesn't work, or do we do so in a way that is natural, or dare I say supernatural, because of our union with Christ? Next question is, if Baxter's approach isn't good, then what is? Well, let's not try to address antinomianism with nomianism. So if people are are not obeying God, they're not doing the right thing, what do we do? Well, what we do is not overreact, over-pendulum swing to neo-nomianism, and now we come up with these new laws, and now all of a sudden, like Baxter, we tell them to do these things that the Bible never says you must do. Let's not do that. Let's go back to, once again, Romans 6, union with Christ. We come back to that being key to the whole thing. And now all of a sudden, I like to say we're evangelizing Christians. We evangelize the lost and we evangelize Christians. The key to Christian growth in godliness is Christ. It is union with Christ, understanding, meditating, growing, and operating from that particular vantage point. And I think finally what we would want to say on this episode of the Pactum would be this means we end up emphasizing not these extra biblical neo laws, these new laws. What we want to emphasize is what the Bible has already given us. We believe the Bible is sufficient as God's special revelation. And so we go back to what we like to say, ordinary means, ordinary means ministry, the ordinary means of grace. And that takes us back to episode 16. So instead of saying, well, here's what you must do. You must, in order to be godly, to be sanctified, you must meditate on heaven for a half hour a day. Well, it might sound good, but why am I now introducing this new thing that the Bible never introduced? I realize the Bible says that we should set our affections on the things above. So why is it just a half hour? Why isn't it all the time? Why isn't it to be a regular practice? It's one thing to be biblical and to help people get through the hard times by saying, this is what scripture says, but it's going too far to say, here's what scripture says. And now we're going to make it more specific than scripture makes it. Let's do ordinary means of grace. Let's do the right preaching of the word of God, which is preaching the law and the gospel. Let's do the right administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Let's also do church discipline. How about that? Church discipline is going to play a part in keeping people from antinomianism. 
It's actually ordained by God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, not all of these made-up spiritual disciplines that may seem good and sound good, but they didn't come from the Bible. They didn't come from the Protestant Reformation. They came from self. They came from some kind of uh, well-meaning, perhaps, but controlling preacher, or they came from Catholic mystics or somewhere else. How about ordinary means of grace? And if the ordinary means of grace don't work, how about this, friends? Nothing is going to work. Nothing is going to work. But the fact of the matter is they do work. They do, in fact, work. And let's also keep in mind, if we're opposing the Baxterianism that's neonomian, that's extra biblical, uh, that is divorced from union with Christ, that is divorced from the ordinary means of grace ministry, let's also keep in mind that there's a huge place in the Christian life and the Protestant reformers did a good job by God's grace recovering this category. And that would be the category of Christian freedom. We should do a whole episode on the pactum on Christian freedom because it actually ends up being a massive, massively important issue because we are free. We're free to honor God. We're free to make choices. We're free to do what's right. And so, so much of what we do as Christians, if the Bible says something and it's applicable to us, then it's, it's, we're not free to obey or disobey. Uh, it, it's, it's a given. But the Bible gives us so much freedom in how we live for the glory of Christ and how we live for the good of our neighbors. And we overstep our boundaries and we're backsteerian in our perspective when we're taking away Christians' freedom and we're trying to tell them this is how you must live in order to be sanctified when the Bible never, in fact, does that. Well, hopefully this encourages you. Hopefully it helps you. I realize it's a little bit on the negative side of things. We're not going any further into the book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, but I am commending it to you. It's not the easiest thing to read in the whole world, uh, but it is quite helpful because it's offering a more gospel-centric, gospel-grounded truly, therefore, evangelical perspective on growth and godliness, and it's not offering you the Romish um, perspective on growth and godliness, which doesn't work anyway, which is built upon a faulty structure. So as we bring things to a close, let me remind you, we do have a contest going on right now. Uh, we're asking you to post a picture of yourself wearing your Pactum gear. And if you post your picture on Twitter or Instagram on September 22nd, 2021, we are going to select a winner. And when we select a winner, you're going to receive a free copy of Sacred Bond by Zach Keel and Michael Brown, one of our favorite books here on the Pactum. So you can find us or you can tag us on Twitter at the Pactum, at the Pactum, or Instagram at the Pactum Theology. With all of that said, take care, everyone, and we will see you next time on the Pactum. <laughs>